0: Good morning, guys. My name is Taylor, and the Old Testament reading is found in Genesis three seventeen through 23. And to the man, he said, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the, the sweat of your brow... Will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made? For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve, because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree, and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden. And he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made, the word of the Lord. Good morning. my name is Becca Giles, and the New Testament reading is from 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-five through58. "Where is your victory, death? Where is your sting death? Death, sting is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God who gives us this victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As a result of all of this, my loved brothers and sisters, you must stand firm, unshakable, excelling in the work of the Lord as always, because you know that your labor isn't going to be nothing in the Lord. The word of the Lord. Good morning.
1: Would you please join me as you are in standing for the gospel of the Lord? It's from John nineteen twenty-eight through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a, hyssop, say, on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The word of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. You may see the Lord. (laughs) Well, several weeks ago, we began a series about work and the workplace. And Pastor Brad Baker did the first two weeks. In week one, he talked about work as uh, as being done unto the Lord as worship the Second week, he talked about work as witness. And then last week, I talked about work zoomed out. We said, let's go back to the beginning. Why do we even work? And we talked about work being a pre-fall call, which maybe for some of us, that was really bad news to know that work was not the result of the fall. But work is really part of how we bear God's image. Work is how we collaborate with God to cultivate his world. And so we talked about what that might look like to collaborate with God. And we said you can live out your calling in different contexts because your calling has to do with how you collaborate with God. And, and then we, we talked about cultivating and, and working in a way that makes something of the world instead of just working in a way that takes something from the world. And we all know that the way of working that is exploitive, that just takes from instead of makes of the world. I'm reminded a little bit of um, the the, the quote from Martin Luther where he said, the Christian shoemaker, what should he do? Uh, He does his job unto the Lord not by putting little crosses on his shoes, but by making good shoes. And that there is this thing of part of how we cultivate is to have a sense of vocational holiness. We used that phrase last week. The idea of taking our work with a kind of seriousness and making it great. Now, today, in kind of the last part of this series, I want to address maybe the thing that's still looming over your heads, and that is, okay, Glenn, this is cute, and I like that, and you've got those catchy words like collaborate and cultivate, and sounds very clever, but you don't understand, I hate my job. And I know last week we hinted at it a little bit. We said sometimes you have to stay in your work so that you can subvert it, so that you can change the way. But other times, you have to change where you work in order to change how you work. Sometimes that's true. So right off the top here, I want to say there is no easy Christian answer to, what do I do if I hate my job? (laughs) Okay, the New York Times a month ago had ran a piece that said, why you hate your job. I wasn't able to read the article because it had expired off of its free thing and I wasn't going to pay to read it. So I don't know why they think you hate your job. Okay. But I have a thought on why you hate your job. And it has to do with going back into the very beginning. And so last week was Genesis 1 and 2. This week, We pick up the story in Genesis 3 and we heard the Old Testament reading starting in in, in Genesis 3 verse 17 and God's talking to Adam and he says, look, you've listened to the voice of your wife, you've eaten of the tree. Now he says, cursed is the ground because of you. The first thing I want you to notice from this text is that you are not cursed, the ground is. The result of the fall is not that humanity is cursed but that the ground in which we work has been cursed. And so this, the result of the fall immediately is, okay, this ground is cursed. There's going to be thorns and thistles. By the sweat of your brow, he says, you're going to eat. You're still going to eat, but you're going to do it with some sweat. And you'll feel that this morning depending on how well the fans work. And then verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden to work the ground from where he was taken. Now listen. The call doesn't change. See, I think it's important to recognize that after the fall, God doesn't say to Adam, He doesn't say, okay, uh, Adam, you've, you've, you've messed up, and so no more working the ground. No, He says, no, you're, you're still going to work the ground. It's just that there's going to be work. The title this morning is The Toil and the Joy of Work. The Toil and the Joy of Work. And so as we look right away in this Genesis text, Genesis 3, we see it. There it is. The call doesn't change. The call to cultivate the ground doesn't change. It's just that now the ground is working against us. Everything is working against you. You know, it's sort of like trying to garden here in Colorado. Everything's working against you. If you want it to, you've got to bring in soil from like Tennessee or something, you know. <laughs> And then, and then you got to like build like something to cover it up when it hails randomly, you know, when it turns from a beautiful sunny day to like tornado warning, tornado warning, which none of us really take all that seriously, right? But except for the hail. And so it feels like the very grain of the universe is working against us. Why won't it cooperate? And you think about this, you know, last week. We said, look, this, this idea of work doesn't just apply to people who work and get a paycheck for this. It applies to everything we do. It applies to the care and raising and discipling of children. It, it applies to those who give their lives to be at home and do that. And you think, why my children are so angelic when they stay asleep? And then all of a sudden they're awake. It's like they're working against me. <laughs> right? You feel this. But we feel this in the world. Whatever work you do, why is it that the ground itself seems to work against us? Fruitfulness now must be intentional. Fruitfulness is never accidental. Fruitfulness doesn't just happen. And this is true about anything, isn't it? This is true of friendships. This is true of marriage. This is true of relationships. It's why sometimes you wake up one day and you say, what happened to this relationship? Or what happened to this friendship? We used to be so close And you realize the whole grain of the universe goes toward deterioration or decay, right? There's even a scientific law about this, entropy. And that if we want something to bear fruit, we've got to now work. It's got to be intentional. Fruitfulness now is intentional. But there's something else that happened as a result of this fall. Not just that there's toil in work, but that the work is now tainted in terms of motives. Do you know, the first thing, we talked last week about Adam getting the creative act of naming the animals, so that's wonderful. But shortly after, the creative artifact, the first artifact that the humans make is what? Clothing. The first artifact that humans make. And why did they make clothing? Because all of a sudden they felt shame. Now, there's something, you've got to go beyond the literal here and just imagine nakedness as a picture in the Old Testament of shame. And all of a sudden, they're saying, I'm aware of this nakedness, and there's shame associated with it for the first time and ever after in the Old Testament narratives. And so all of a sudden, the first cultural artifact, the first thing that is made is now made out of the motivation of shame. Think about that. How often do we work out of a motivation of shame? Well, I've got to work because if I don't work, my society will think I'm lazy. Now, I often think this I, Fridays are my day off, Fridays and Saturdays. And so sometimes, you know, I'll be the neighbors will see me or others will see me, and I feel this need to explain. I don't always lounge around in my PJs on a weekday. You know, like I work Sunday through Thursday, but just you know. <laughs> Because there's this sense of shame. If I'm not seen to be productive, there's shame. And it's especially true in America, isn't it? I mean, we, we work more days, more hours than most cultures in the world. There's, I think, just a very few exceptions. And so there is this shame that drives us crazy and makes us say, well, I've got to stay on top of the email. I mean, whoa, I got an email from my boss at 11 o'clock. What will they think if I don't respond right away? Or there's this and there's that. I've got to stay on this because otherwise I don't want to be perceived as the one person in the team who's the weakest link. And shame, how often is shame the motivation for our work? But you know, the Genesis narratives continue and you, it kind of reaches this like pinnacle point of crisis in Genesis 11 when all the peoples come together and they create a cultural artifact that's much bigger than clothing. They build a tower. And you remember what they say. They say, listen, if we all come together, we can do this. It will reach the heavens. Babel is work that is done out of the motivation of significance. Or if you'd like rhyming words, shame was the early one, and this would be fame. But I think fame, sometimes you hear that word and you think, well, that's not me. I'm not motivated by fame. But we are motivated in an in a very deep way, by this desire for significance. Now, is that in itself evil? No. But does it become twisted? Yes. And so all of a sudden we work to say, I want to build something that will make my name great, that will help me reach the heavens, and I'm working to build this because I've got to make something for myself. And I can't tell you how many marriages are ruined because spouses give each other permission to ignore one another while one of them is going off to build their Babel. So, honey, I've got to just build this. You just stay there. You just do this. You just worry about the I've got to do this. And all of a sudden, you realize, what is the dysfunction that's driving it? It's the same dysfunction that was driving the building of Babel. I've got to make something of myself. Work as a result of the fall is toil, but it's also tainted. But that's not the whole story of work. There's more to it than that. There is also joy. <laughs> but what do we do with this? What do we do with talking about work that, and saying that there's toil in it and saying that it's tainted and saying that there's fleeting moments? Well, what do we do with, with this? I think one of the things we do, quite honestly, is to recognize the limitations of work here and now, is to recognize it. Many things in life get a little bit better when you adjust kind of your expectation of it. You're more truly able to enjoy a thing when you recognize what it is and what it is not. I mean, think about this, right? When, When you have... A, work, a job situation or a work that you've given yourself to and you say, you know what, this is what it is and this is what it is not, so I'll recognize the limitations of it and be okay with it. Instead of believing the illusion that somewhere out there is the perfect job that will make me happy. You know, the, the, the famous saying, I can't remember who started it, but if you find a job doing what you love and you'll never work a day of your life, they're lying. <laughs> like that, that's not true. It's not true for anybody. Several years ago when I, when, I, when I turned 30, I attended this leadership kind of consulting seminar and this life coach guy was speaking and he had us, you know, had these pages and pages of verbs and he had us circle all the verbs on there that describe what, we, what you could do. Oh, I can do this. I can do this. I can do. This. And then he had us categorize it by greens and yellows and reds and he says, "Greens are the things that energize you and yellows are the things that are neutral to you and reds are the things that drain you." It's a very helpful exercise, but he said, he said, "Listen, just so you know, you'll never have a job without reds." I was like, "Well, why did I come to this seminar?" I thought this was like six keys to eliminate draining parts of your work. That, that, it there will ever and always be reds in your work. There will. It, there is toil. And I think the sooner we recognize it, the sooner we say, okay, this is what it is. I embrace that. I accept that. We recognize the limitations of work. But you know, <laughs> there's something else. And that is to recognize the joy in our work where we find it. Because there is joy. I think of the pronouncements that God makes throughout Scripture. You know, in, in Eden, when, when God creates each day, what does he say? He says, it is good. And he doesn't retract that, right? And then you fast forward to the one that we all know, and was our gospel reading today, where Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. Now, many of us stop there, and we think, oh, there it is, it's all done, And we get into all kinds of weird theology because we stop there. But actually, the same gospel writer who records Jesus as saying, it is finished, is the one who later gets this revelation of the one who sits on the throne on this great future day, making a pronouncement in Revelation 21. And what does the one who sits on the throne say? He says, now it is done. A lesser talked about pronouncement, isn't it? So there is an it is finished at the cross, but there's this other final moment when heaven descends onto the earth, remakes the world, death is destroyed, tears are wiped away, and God Almighty says, now it is done. We live as Christians between the it is finished and the it is done. We live between those two pronouncements. We live in the, you'll hear this phrase, the now and the not yet. The yes, God has Completed and yet, in one sense, it hasn't fully come to pass. We live on that in between, and so it's very difficult for us to look even at our work and to say it is finished. I mean, how many of you go to bed at night and you think my work here is done? <laughs> I mean, just never. Yeah, exactly. Hear that? You're like, what? No. I mean, moms are the ones whose, whose minds are racing, you know, you're, you're trying to fall asleep, and you're thinking, wait a minute, I've got to call this person, I've got to plan this thing. And you're like, hey, can you stop? No, I can't stop because it is not finished. And I want to suggest to you that the joy in work is not in the it is done, but in the it is good. That in actuality, to find joy in our work We've got to go back to the creational pronouncement that Almighty God makes and say, okay, I can't say that it is done because we're not living there yet. All my work is going to feel incomplete. But can I go back to that creational moment where God the Creator said it is good and can I look at some of the things I've done and say, and that's good too. And this is how I collaborated with God, so that's good. That's good. I have a friend who says, it's not just good, it's good enough, you know, that's that's not what we're talking about, but, (laughs) sorry, but how can we stop and say, okay, you know what, step back, there's joy in this, that's good, it's good that we made it through five minutes of reading without the kids, like, screaming, you know, it's good that I was able to respond to these things, It's, it's good that I was able to build this much, it's good. And sometimes, actually, it takes friends to look at that for you and to step back with you and to say, hey, 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 good work. Good work there. That's good. That looks, that looks a little bit like our Father in heaven. That looks a little bit like, like the image of our creator. You, you were reflecting his image when you did that. that. That's good. You're like, yeah, I know, but there's so much more. That's what people always say, right? Well, I could have done so much more. I could have, yeah, yeah but, but, but that was good. Let's just say that. Because if we never let ourselves stop and say, it is good, we'll never find joy in work. But if we can stop and say, that was good, that was good. But joy now, even joy now, is a hint at what's coming later. You remember this word, we've talked about this in a few different series here downtown, this word, the Zenzucht. It's this wonderful German word that means the feeling that all things in life are incomplete, incomplete unfinished, imperfect, that, that feeling of saying, I've, I've tasted it, but meh, it wasn't quite what I thought. You know, it's like, it's like um, think building up a, a vacation or a new job or a new, you know, and you think, this is going to be so great. And then you get there and you're like, yeah, meh, yeah. how is the thing, I mean, you know, It was good, but, right? So you've said it is good, but you've also feel this sense of like, yeah, but I feel like I've been brought up short, like I've been led to the edge of the cliff and then let down again, like being a Cleveland Browns fan, you know, like just every year, just "Ah." happy for the city though, return of the king, yeah, okay. Okay. But the Zane I think, could be a fun word to add to your vocabulary. Like, instead of saying, I've been punked, you can say, you've been Zane <laughs> You talk to a friend, you're like, bro, how's that new job you're doing? Well, I mean, it's good, but oh, you've been Zane Yeah, Yeah, yeah I, I yeah, I think I have. C.S. Lewis said this is the word that he loved to use. He called it joy, and he talked about these stabs of joy, these feelings of like, oh, yes, but then... Uh, And he talked about that culminating in Christ, and that these things are hints of what's coming. In a way, these stabs of joy are meant to pull us forward. They're meant to kind of say, yeah, 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 okay, that's good, and yeah, you've been left a little short, but you know what, this isn't the end. There's something future that is coming. We see this in Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. See, there was toil in Jesus' work, too. Oh, there was toil. The ultimate toil. Sweat, not just sweat, but drops of blood. Agony. And yet Jesus saw a joy. That pulled him through? What is this joy that will pull you through? What is the joy that will pull you through those sleepless nights trying to rock the baby back to sleep? What, what, what's the joy that will pull you through the long hours on the construction site? What's the joy that will pull you through getting up early to show up again at work, staying long hours, getting on an airplane again? What is the joy that will pull you through the toil? First Corinthians 15. 58, Paul says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And if you're the circling type, circle that phrase in vain, because this is at the core of what we want. This is what I want. I don't want if i if there's going to be labor fine, but don't let it be in vain. If there's going to be toil, fine, but tell me it's going to be worth it. Earlier in the chapter, Paul says in verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. There's that phrase again. And your faith is in vain. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Listen, this is what Paul's saying the ground will not always resist. The ground that was cursed is the same ground that opened up. When God raised Jesus from the dead. You see, in the resurrection, the ground that was cursed opened up again to bear fruit. I think it's fascinating that Paul uses this language of first fruits. He says, Jesus is the first fruits. That's farming language. That's cultivation language. That maybe is Paul hearkening back to Genesis and saying, listen, remember when the ground would yield thorns and thistles along with its fruit? I tell you what, the resurrection of Jesus is the creator God announcing to the world that the ground will not always resist. It will yield fruit one day. And the resurrection is our assurance of that. Resurrection is God's announcement to the world that the ground will not always resist. Resurrection is God's announcement to the world that the ground will not always resist. One day, there will be this fruit that will abide forever. One day. You say, well, Glenn, I I want that. But how can we be assured of that? How do I know? How do I know? I mean, again, we're tempted to sort of divide our work with holy work and unholy work. And I work in the quote-unquote secular world. I mean, Glenda, are you sure my work will not be in vain? Yes. Because it really has to do with the realm in which you work. Imagine with me, picture with me the realm of self. The realm of self is where we work from shame or for fame. The realm of self is where we build Babel. Babel is the ultimate Zenzuk, the ultimate tower that always ends up short. Babel is that thing that you say, I think we're getting closer to our dream. I think we're getting closer to our goal. And you say, oh, you're still, you still haven't reached heaven. We still haven't reached it. Sometimes the reason we hate our job is because everything we've been doing has been in the realm of self. Everything we've been doing has been in the realm of self. Sometimes the feeling of futility in our work is because you've been building Babel. And everything has been done for me and for a better vacation and for a better retirement and all those are not evil things. But when they become the whole story... There's a problem. Work done in the realm of self will always be like Babel, one more story of an incomplete tower, never quite reaching heaven. But Paul says there's another realm. You can actually work in the Lord. You can do work in the Lord. That doesn't mean you have to do Christian work. It means you can be in the Lord, wherever you work, and say, okay, God, I'm inviting you in. Okay, God, this work today is done, is offered up to you. In a few moments, we're going to come to the Lord's table. The Eucharist is what Christians have called this table for centuries. This word Eucharist means thanksgiving. It means Thanksgiving, and inside that word Eucharist is this little word Charis, which means grace, or quite simply, gift. Do you know how we started working in the realm of self? We started off in the realm of self when, when the first man and woman looked at something and took. They didn't receive as gift; they took. And we undo this when we come to the table. Because do you know what we do at the table? We receive. You never take communion. You receive communion. You see, this puts the whole world back on its feet. A world that we turned on its head by saying, I am going to work in the realm of self. I'm going to take the fruit because I want to be like God. I'm going to take Taking is what got us in trouble in the first place. And at the table we come and we say, all right, I'm going to receive. And how we move from the realm of self to the realm of in the Lord is by saying, okay, every good gift comes from you. So I receive this from you. And the only response to a gift is thanksgiving. The only response to charis is Eucharist the only response to the gift of grace is thanksgiving all of a sudden then your work gets totally reshaped it's not work done out of shame it's not work done out of this desire to make a name it's work all of a sudden done in the Lord work that's done that says okay thank you for this Monday thank you for another day I offer this back up to you in thanksgiving. Imagine how that changes your Monday. Imagine how that would change all of our work. Paul says when you work this way in the Lord, it's not going to be in vain. You're going to find things within it that all of a sudden echo into eternity. Fruit that you didn't realize. People's lives that were Changed because of little things you you weren't aware of. All because every morning you got out of bed and said, Father, I receive this day as a gift. I offer it back to you in thanksgiving. Let my work be done in the Lord. There's a psalm that anticipates this kind of approach. It's Psalm 90. And Psalm 90, for a long part of it, is a bit morbid. It talks about the futility of earth and... But then it ends with this prayer and I'd like us to stand and pray it this morning as the worship team comes up. Let's pray together the words of this psalm. If you would just kind of open up your hands and and maybe have in your mind here the thing that could be called your work, whether it's at home, in the home, outside the home, whether it's for a paycheck or not. Put in your mind the thing that is your work and let's pray this together. So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. And for as many years as we have seen evil, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands.